WWDC starts tomorrow, and to celebrate, we have a very special guest on to talk about the state of Apple in 2020. Plus, we have a new Tech Yeah segment with a pretty awesome device from Rav Power. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we are taking a look at Apple and iOS in 2020. And to do that, we got a hold of the smartest guy in the room when it comes to talking Apple, Renee Ritchie. I'm thrilled to have him on as a guest to talk about all things Apple, but first we have to get to the news of the week. Right off the bat, I wanted to mention that this is an evolving show, and lately... I've been going a bit crazy on the news segment. I understand that. Sometimes reaching as much as 20 minutes of me just talking about various news pieces, and sometimes that's okay, but this week I decided to cut back on it a little bit. I'm kind of curious to see how it turns out, and I'd like to hear from you what you think as well, benefitofadow.com slash contact. And here I am wasting another 30 seconds talking about how I'm not going to waste any more time and just shut up, Dowd, and get to the news already. All right, fine jerk. Also, we're not starting the news yet because it's announcement time. My Patreon is a place where you can help directly support the show, and I thank all of my patrons for doing that. But the current model is a little... Eh, funky. And so I'm going to tweak things up just a little bit. I'm still working out the nitty-gritty details, but I should be able to provide more clarity next week. It's good news for all my listeners, I promise. And now we can get to the news. On Monday, I discovered that my wife wasn't able to call me, nor was I able to call her. Well, that's not totally weird. Her phone is two years old, and it looks like she put it through a blender. But when a reboot didn't fix it, and my daughter found out she couldn't call me either, well, Houston, we have a problem. That problem, it turns out, is that we are T-Mobile subscribers, and while some would argue that that is a problem in and of itself, on Monday, that was a problem because T-Mobile's network kind of freaked out a lot a lot. Basically, T-Mobile was trying to do an upgrade to its systems and, well, it didn't go well. As a result, a large chunk of America found itself unable to use various parts of T-Mobile's network. For some, data died. For others, voice call died. For some, both died. My family, it turns out, wasn't the worst. We could only not dial other T-Mobile customers. We could dial AT&T and Verizon, just not T-Mobile. It was kind of weird, but honestly... We never really call anyone, so it really didn't affect us. Other people, it affected pretty hard. The outage was resolved by the end of Monday, so it could have been worse, but when T-Mobile's primary circuit failed, and then the backup failed, that doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence, especially if your bill still comes from Sprint. Last year, the United States put Huawei on the entity list, which means that U.S. companies cannot work with Huawei pretty much at all. But this week, the Commerce Department rewrote the rules allowing U.S. companies to work with Huawei on setting standards for cellular communication. This is pretty important because Huawei is a leader in the 5G technology space right now, and Huawei will have a seat at the table when it comes to developing 5G standards. Now, American companies can sit with them, which is very, very important. CNBC explains standards like this, quote, The reason we can go around the world and use Wi-Fi 
Wi-Fi quite easily in most places is because industry bodies have worked out standards for the technology. These are technical specifications and other things that spell out how a technology works and allows different devices or systems around the world to work together. So, you can imagine, it's also advantageous for 5G standards to also be global. This isn't really a win for anyone, though, certainly not for Huawei. If anything, it's a win for the U.S. for getting a seat at the table in the first place through law, because Huawei gained their seat at the table by momentum and scale. So as boring as all this is to you and me, it's actually critically important to that which we love, mobile technology. If you thought HTC was out of the mobile game... Well, you're not entirely wrong, as HTC debuted two mid-range smartphones for its home market of Taiwan this week. The Desire 20 Pro and the U20 5G smartphones are both coming to Taiwan shores, and even though the product pages are up on HTC's site, there's still no mention of pricing. Great, it's been so long HTC forgot how to sell phones. The HTC U25 G, and before you ask, no, HTC is absolutely not copying Samsung's 20 naming scheme, not at all, so just go mind your own damn business. Sorry. The U20 5G will be powered by Qualcomm Snapdragon 765G and come with a 6.8 inch FHD Plus display, 256 gigabytes of onboard storage, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and a quad camera setup on the back, and a 5,000 milliamp hour battery. All told, pretty good for a mid range device. Meanwhile, HTC did not take the opportunity to retire the Desire brand unfortunately, because it's also releasing the Desire 20 Pro-ish with a Snapdragon 665, 6GB of RAM, 100GB of onboard storage, and the same quad camera setup on the back and the same 5000mAh battery. Both phones also ship with Android 10, thank God, but whether or not they'll ever be sold outside of Taiwan and whether or not anyone will care if they do remains to be seen. This isn't exactly the grand re-entry into the smartphone scene that we'd hoped for, but it is a start. At last count, SpaceX has over 500 Starlink satellites whizzing around the planet at 550 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Soon, Starlink looks to start beta testing. Wait for it. Internet from space! That's right, if you head on over to Starlink's website right now, you can sign up for updates from Starlink and availability in your area. LifeWire, the news outlet reporting the story, posits that initial beta testers may be limited to people above the 40th parallel, which Chicago is, and also have limited broadband options in their area. Well, shoot, my zip code has like four broadband providers to choose from, and yes, when it comes to internet connectivity options, I am the 1%. All the same, I signed up, so we'll see if a prominent reporter like myself gets chosen. No, it totally won't be me. But it'd be fun to try it. And it may be you, so head on over to the Starlink website and get signed up. You never know, you might just get a personal email from Elon. No, you're right, it would definitely be a tweet. Cameo is a company that started out doing video shoutouts from celebrities to normals like you and me. Now, I'm not going to say that they are coronavirus inspired, but they're doing 10 minute Zoom meetings with celebrities, including up to four of your friends. Celebrities set their own prices. For example, The Verge cites Jeremy Piven at $15,000 for a 10 minute meeting. Seriously. 
I mean, okay, look, Jeremy, you are kind of popular in Entourage and PCU, but those are literally the only two things I can think of that you are in. $15,000? Who's clamoring for a video call with Jeremy Piven enough to trade a Kia Sorento for it? Can you finance these Zoom calls? Do they take Visa? All due respect to Mr. Piven, it's 10 minutes of your life. You're not that valuable. Okay, I really need to get off the Jeremy Piven train. Now, on the face of it, this is kind of a pretty cool service, but when you really stop to think about it, this service kind of prices out basically anyone who wouldn't normally have a Zoom call with a celebrity. If you have 15 grand to drop on a FaceTime call with Beyonce, that's an incredible amount of disposable income, and I have to think that those people would be rich enough to you you know, just already have her number if they wanted it. So give her a call and give $15,000 to the ALCU or something. Parallels is a virtualization software that allows you to run Windows apps on a Mac. This week, Parallels announced that they're tackling a new operating system, Baidu. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's Chrome OS. This is a big deal for a lot of people. Parallels, because they're tackling another set of customers. Google, because it's a big reason for people to start considering Chrome OS. And Microsoft, because let's be honest, what's the software that you think people will use Parallels for? Microsoft Office. And I know some of you might be thinking Google Docs, but come on. It's Google Docs compared to Microsoft Office. For individuals, Docs might be fine. I write my scripts in Docs. But for corporations, Office is pretty much the poo, and we all gotta take a big whiff. Anyway, this is also a win for people looking to buy $1,000 Chromebooks and makers of those Chromebooks. I've often said that there's no point in picking up a Chromebook with that much power because Chrome doesn't really have the apps to utilize them. Well, now with Parallels, we could be looking at Office or Adobe Creative Suite and more, and that's pretty awesome news. Maybe not good news for Google Docs, but awesome news all the same. This week, the makers of Basecamp released a new email service which costs $99 per year for some damn reason. They call it Hey! Hey is an email service that allows you to micromanage the hell out of your inbox, or inbox as they call it, I-M-B-O-X, and nobody should ever call it that. Basically, when a first-time emailer emails you, it sits in kind of email purgatory until you decide what to do with it. Once you dismiss it, every email from that sender is just gone. You can also categorize your emails as they come in, so they auto-filter from then on. The thing is, Gmail already does a lot of this. There's a difference in workflow, but it's basically the same, and Hey costs $100 per year. Fancy! I will not be getting the Hey email. My workflow works for me, and I kind of get what Hey is going for here, but... It's been, what, 16 years since Gmail came out? By now, people have workflow that works for them, so good luck to you, hey? I wish you all the best, but I'm sticking with Gmail. And speaking of hey, everybody's getting on board the Apple's App Store sucks train. It started with the EU investigating anti-competitive practices from Apple. After that, hey got an update rejected from Apple because Apple wanted to force it to use its payment system and give Apple its 30%. Well, we already know that Spotify hates Apple, and now Match Group, the makers of Tinder, and Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, are joining the chorus calling out Apple for its anti-competitive BS. And for the record, 
I do think it's BS. Apple built a closed ecosystem that doesn't allow you to install software under your phone or iPad without coming from the App Store. It's literally the only way to do it, and Apple is definitely taking advantage of that fact. But getting back to the outcry, Apple claims that it's, quote, leveling the playing field by charging everyone the same 30%. But it's also kind of not, because earlier this year, Amazon got a special deal for buying movies and books for less than that 30% cut. Apple isn't offering that to Hay, or Spotify, or pretty much anybody else, which rightly is what folks are mad about. Of course, if you listen to Spotify, Tinder, and especially Amazon, what all this means is, if you're wildly successful, you should be able to negotiate for less of an anal raping, which doesn't really help Joe Developer making an alarm clock app for 99 cents. Putting aside the fact that no one should ever buy an alarm clock app for 99 cents, something isn't right here. And I'll be totally honest, Overall, it's kind of hard to decide which multi-million dollar company whining about money is the right one to back in this fight. And finally, this last story doesn't seem tech-related until you dig into it a little bit. A masked woman was caught on film taking a burning piece of wood from a police car that had been set on fire and tossing it into another police car, which soon went up in flames. But... What were the police to do? She was masked, and they couldn't identify her. Well, guess what, Laura Elizabeth Blumenthal? You have been identified, and it's all because of an Etsy review. This is a quote from Ars Technica, and please do read the rest of the story because it's pretty great. And this is long, so bear with me. Quote, Even with photos and videos, the FBI wasn't able to identify the suspect because her face wasn't visible. But the t-shirt that she wore was unique and sold on Etsy. So FBI agents read the reviews on the seller's Etsy page to see if anyone from the Philadelphia area had purchased it. Blumenthal had left a five-star review that said, Fast shipping, thanks very much, from her username, Alley Cat Lore. And her Etsy profile displayed her location as Philadelphia, the affidavit said. The FBI did not yet have her full name, so they did a search for Alley Cat Lore and found a user on the online fashion marketplace Poshmark with a display name of Lore-Elizabeth. A search for Lore Elizabeth in Philadelphia turned up a LinkedIn profile for an individual matching the name Lore Elizabeth who appears to be employed as a massage therapist with a company that provides massage therapy services. Pictures of the alleged arsonist showed a tattoo of a peace sign on her right forearm and that tattoo was visible in the four-year-old video of Lore Elizabeth performing a massage on her business's website. Holy digital crumbs, Batman. Now, before Blumenthal was detained, the FBI used more official means like subpoenas and federal databases to confirm that she was actually the person that they were looking for. And of course, it'll be up to a jury of her peers to determine whether or not she's actually guilty. But this just goes to show you that digital fingerprints are everywhere. And it's not hard to figure out who someone is if you do enough digging. Well played, FBI. And, well, best of luck, Laura Elizabeth. I bet you're not so happy about that shipping now. This week on the podcast, I want to talk about a battery that I picked up from RavPower. It's a 20,000 milliamp hour battery pack capable of 80 watts of output 
through an AC power outlet. That's right, folks. You can charge your laptop, your camera, your Nintendo Switch, basically anything else off of this battery pack, which is just awesome. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's start from the beginning. Right off the bat, this battery pack is not svelte. It's about the size of a cup of coffee, but not like a normal cup of coffee, like a grande. It's like six inches tall with a three inch rounded square shape. It'll actually fit into some cup holders, but you really shouldn't do that because there's a fan at the bottom of the device. And that's right, this thing is fan cooled. On all sides is a soft touch black material, which feels really nice to hold. And the thing is built like a brick, and you get the sense that it could probably handle some punishment as well. On top, you'll find the USB-A, USB-C, and AC outlet, the latter of which has a rubber flap to help keep liquids out. A button on the top turns the charger on, indicated by five blue LEDs on the side of a device, which show you the amount of charge left in the tank. Overall, this is a big boy, probably bigger than other 20,000 mAh batteries, but that AC outlet makes it worth all the trouble. The AC outlet is capable of 80 watts of output, as I mentioned before, while the other USB-C and USB-A ports can output at 30 watts power delivery and 18 watts respectively. It's like a buffet of charging options. I've used the battery for charging up the Lenovo Duet while I'm working on it. it works quite well. I've even used the AC outlet to charge up my MacBook. You can use all three charging ports at the same time, though they are all a little cramped. So depending on the plug that you're using, you might block the other ports. So that's a downside. The chunkiness is another downside. I'd really like something that I can slip into my pocket or in a backpack, but this definitely isn't that. That being said, those other battery packs that you can do that with usually don't have AC outlets, so that makes this pretty great. Also, the price tag is quite high for a 20,000 milliamp hour battery, over $80. But at the end of the day, will this be worth it to you? I think so. The versatility is what really sells this device. You can plug anything into it. I mean, I haven't tried my lawnmower yet, but if I'm honest, I've been kind of tempted. So check it out on the Benefit of a Doubt website, and if you pick one up, as an Amazon affiliate, I may get a little cut, so you'll be helping out the show, and you'll have my thanks. Renee Ritchie has been a fan of and journalist covering Apple for longer than I've been in this industry. When it comes to all things Apple, from Macs to iPhones, Renee is the go-to guy. So with WWDC coming up this next week, I invited him onto the show to talk about the state of iOS and Apple in 2020. And we had a good, long conversation. So without further ado, here's Renee. Joining us on the podcast today is a distinguished guest, a veteran of videos and podcasts alike, and longtime veteran in our industry as lead Apple analyst and executive editor of iMore. Recently, after more than a decade, this gentleman stepped out from under the future umbrella and now braves the storm as a solo artist. He's basically the Paul McCartney of journalism. Like all good creators, you can find him all over the place, including his own YouTube channel with over 65,000 subscribers, daily podcasts on Nebula, and your favorite podcast players by the way, and even over on the Twit Network for Mac Break Weekly. And if those credentials haven't given his identity away by now, I'm curious as to what the real estate market is like for boulders, because y'all definitely been living under a rock. Renee Ritchie, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's exciting to have you here, and this is a podcast that I've been kind of planning since, I would, even before the inception of this podcast, this is an episode that I wanted to do for a while, 
we're basically going to take a look at the state of Apple and iOS in 2020, because 2020 is kind of a milestone year, yeah. although I think we could all um, very thankfully push the reset button on this particular 2020, but uh, yeah, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's a milestone year, though, and so I thought it was a, a good time to take a look at all industries and kind of see where they are, where they came from, and more importantly, where they're going. So yeah. um, one thing I wanted to put out right out right from the offset, as I mentioned back on our State of Android podcast, this is the State of the iOS podcast, and we'll be making the same assumptions. Both iOS and Android are very good and very mature operating systems, they, but they both have flaws, and that's perfectly okay. We're not bashing anybody here. We're just going to focus on what we're here to talk it about. It gives them character. It gives it them character. It does. It really, really does. And and as an Android guy, doing a review of the iPhone SE, I'm actually in the middle of... This isn't going to air until, like, WWDC time, but okay. when we're recording this now, I'm in the middle of doing my iPhone SE review. And, man, that's an adjustment. <laughs> so well, I had to do a Pixel 4 review, so fair is fair. Oh, there you go. You know what? <laughs> we should we should meet in the middle and compare notes then. Sure. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so... I wanted to start off uh, by talking about your beginnings. You've been in this for a very long time, and I just wanted to know, how did you get started in Apple back in the beginning? Was it was it the iPhone, or do we go even further back than that? Yeah, so I had an Apple II Plus when I was a kid because my father worked at IBM, and he didn't like, he got tired of having to drive downtown just to get on the main mainframe. So he bought an Apple II, and he used it for VisiCalc and things like that. But then, you know, as his business changed, he got into DOS boxes, and then uh, I got an Amiga. And I was using things like Video Toaster and Opal Vision. And when Amiga went away, I got a Performa Mac at home. But that was not the best of times for Apple. Okay. So I also had a work laptop that was Windows, you know, three point something back then. Okay. And I stuck with Windows for work, like through Windows ninety five, Windows ninety eight. I was one of the moderators on the CompuServe new users and Windows forum when Windows ninety eight launched, and that was, you know all the scads of fun. And I was working in enterprise product marketing, which is as fun and boring as you might imagine. <laughs> and every year I would get the latest Dell laptop. You know, it was just, it was what the company did because they didn't last that long, frankly, even with on-site service, they like the chassis would crack and, you know, they would get kludgy. So every year I just got a new one um, and they took back the old one. And gotcha. then Vista shipped and the I got the brand new Vista Dell laptop, opened it up, and it said that it w did not have drivers available for the screen. Ooh. And keep in mind, this was a laptop. <laughs> that sounds very Vista-like. Okay. <laughs> so the tech support guy, the IT guy said, that's it, enough. We're just going to get you a MacBook. And so they got me a 17-inch MacBook Pro running Tiger. And it took me about a week of frustration. Uh, I hadn't used Mac OS in a while. I'd used the classic OS, but yeah. I skipped over all the pain of Mac OS. And a week later, I was working faster, easier, and more productively than ever before. And I still use Windows. Like I've had Windows on and off for a bunch of stuff over the years. But mm -hmm. Mac OS just fits the way my brain works and, and how I can like muscle memory figure out my way through a computer. So I've stuck with it ever since. Let me ask you this. Since you've been you've been with Apple for, I mean, if you're going back to Windows Vista, that's, good Lord, that's what, Windows 2000? It was like not, 2007, yeah. 2008. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. I like the anti-kernel. Got, we got to Windows ME. I said, nope, hard nope. I'm sticking with the anti-kernel. So I went to 2000 and then stuck with the anti-kernel stream. And then it just got to a point you know, where 
I loved Windows for the same reason I loved uh, Windows Mobile and early versions of Android is that I could make it into anything. I could skin it. I could theme it. I could do all these yeah. things. Yeah. And then as you get busier in life, potential becomes like paralysis. It's like just I didn't want to work that hard for my stuff anymore. I used to build my own computers. I did everything. And I just I just need to get this work done. Right. So having the constraints of Apple, as much as some people hate them, I could I literally could not waste time custom building machines, theming things, doing all that stuff. I could just like the computer was there. I had to make a few small sacrifices in terms of what I could do with them. But mm-hmm. once I got past that barrier, all I could do was my work. Yeah. Zero distractions and I, I, that I that's totally what happened. I get that. I totally get. And you know one one of my one things that I always say about Android is I don't want to micromanage my phone. You know, yeah. like I I just wanted to um, you know, hashtag just work. But anyway, so popular opinion kind of has it that there's like two eras for Apple. There's the Steve Jobs era and then there's the Tim Cook era. First of all, do you even recognize that distinction would be the first question. Like, do you see it as kind of a Steve Jobs? And I don't mean versus like versus like, you know, fight, but like, you know, <laughs> but like, you know, there is a Steve, you know, when Steve was in charge and now the Tim is in charge. Do you even recognize that as like two separate things or is it just two parts of the same tasty pie yeah i think there's like with steve and without steve because johnny ive was fairly constant for a long time across Mm -hmm. those products and i forget who did it but someone made a really good observation about pixar at one point where they said like originally pixar under steve jobs they and steve jobs has said this himself you swing like it's babe ruth you only have one shot but you swing like it's babe ruth and you try to hit a home run every time Mm -hmm. and the problem is once in a while you strike out and we saw that with like the the iphone the ipod hi-fi and ping and mobile me like those things were people forget steve jobs had some terrible products and there were some terrible bugs under steve jobs where tim cook is more like pixar under disney where there's more people involved, there's more consensus built, there's more harmony um, amongst the executive team, Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't hit those peaks of genius as frequently, although you arguably still once in a while, but you also don't have those, once in a while you do, but arguably less often do you have those massive misses. Everything is sort of normalized. And I Mm -hmm. think Steve might have helped Johnny avoid some of his bigger transgressions like the you know infamous butterfly keyboard i think like you know six months into that he would have been down there throwing that thing against the wall and saying why doesn't it you know it's a keyboard why doesn't it work like a keyboard where today's apple was more about what's wrong with it can we fix it can we you know there was more uh, discussion involved in it Hmm. but i think there's still the guiding philosophy is still we want to make products that that change like we want we there are this quality this category of products people really like them what can we contribute to make these products better for people? Right. Perfect. Perfect. So Apple is doing a lot of things right. I mean, that's kind of a given. You know, they, they wouldn't be as successful as they are if they weren't. So what are some yeah. things that you think Apple might be doing wrong and how can it change that? So I always like to look at it like your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness. And I think some people say success hides failure. And okay. Apple's success is their culture. Like w- the culture that they have is produced some of the most successful products of all time, but it's also hindered things. Like the they put out an iPhone every year, but some of the Macs have been neglected for years, you know, infamously neglected for years. And you know, all software has bugs, but some of the releases have been buggier than others. Okay. And if I had my druthers, like I loved iOS 12. I thought that was one of the most stable, best launches they did. And iOS 13 was one of the worst. Mm. I would love if Apple 
you know, and to some extent, you know, all the companies, Google included, would get off of this idea of for for things like Android. Google already does this for Chrome, but for things like big software releases, and I think Microsoft has moved away from this successfully to like get off of the idea of big monolithic releases. Like instead of coming out every June, you know, for WWDC and saying this is iOS 14, all of this is arriving in September. I'd love for them to switch to. This is iOS 14. It's our roadmap for the next year of iPhone. You're going to get some of these features in September. Some are going to come in November. Some are going to come in February, March. Some of them by next June. And that way, because we already get the stuff delayed. You know, like iMessage Sync, some of the stuff famously has come three or six months late even. Just Mm -hmm. give yourself more time. And I know it's competitive between Android and iOS, but for customers, that competitiveness is both good and bad because both of them ship agonizing flaws every year that if they would just you know relax and if something takes longer, take longer. They're both mature enough operating systems that that would be great. And I think that that combined with just making sure that whenever a customer is ready to buy, they always have a modern version of a device to buy. And they have that with the iPhone. They're pretty good with that with the iPad. They have not been good with that with the Mac. And so if they would just make sure that, and I'm not saying like some people panic when I say that and say they're not, if they updated every month, it, it'd be crazy. I'm like, just every year, you should be able to go into a store and get a modern computer with that year's specs that will last you however many years you intend to use it. And I think mm-hmm. they need to readjust how they prioritize resources to make that happen. Interesting. Okay, so so even more frequent releases for hardware. And it's interesting that we bring this up, like, in the year that, and I don't know if this was in 2020 or not, like the Mac Pro. I want to say that was tail end of 2019, yep. but regardless, within the last 365 days, we've seen an update to the Mac Pro, the MacBook Air, the MacBook, uh, the MacBook Pro, actually earlier this week on the week that we record. Yeah. So it's interesting that 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 particular uh, come that that particular point comes up this but the particular iMac year. The iMac is like not been right. So like there's always, and I understand it's like okay, imagine yeah. you're you're a music agent and you have two clients. And one is like uh, an 80-year-old crooner. And, you know, they're, they're, they're booked for three months in Vegas. They have family. They've settled down. They're fine. And the other one is Taylor Swift. Mm. Now, you love both your clients, but one is just so much more demanding that inevitably so much more of your resources go towards satisfying those demands. I sense. totally get it. I'm just saying pick up the phone every week. <laughs> right, right. Okay. All right, cool. I like it. I like it. So let me ask you this. When it comes to, um, I want to talk about iPadOS because yeah. Apple recently recently kind of acknowledged the fact that iPads are actually different devices. So um, iPadOS just came out a little bit. When this airs, it'll have been about a year since it was announced and then it actually I want to say it rolled out in like September-ish somewhere yep. in that neighborhood. So like how are you feeling about iPad OS and I've I've been an iOS user for years as an iPad user. Yep. So I'm just just a little context when it comes to my iOS experience it's lion's share iPad not yep. so much iPhone. So how are you feeling about iPad OS and the division the the schism if you will between iOS and iPad OS? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me because, and whether you consider this a blessing or a curse will depend on your point of view, but Apple is one of the very, very few companies that's managed to have successful phone, tablet, and 
wearable software. You know, mm -hmm. Microsoft has struggled with that. Google has struggled with that. Apple is doing it, but it's in a it's in a far more restricted and constrained way. Like they have very specific hardware targets, um, and those targets have become very popular. Which means that uh, their whole business model, like from the silicon on up, doesn't have the same sort of uh, they can afford to do it. You know, it's really hard for a Qualcomm to afford to make all those chips or for an, an operating system company to afford to make all that software. Apple has made a really good model for paying all that stuff down. Mm -hmm. But it did hold the iPad back in some ways because it was sort of you know, an ancillary to the iPhone. Again, the iPhone is Taylor Swift. Right. And it would get every couple of years some special attention. But I think there was more of a division for a long time within Apple that... When Steve Jobs announced the iPad, he said it was the most important device he ever made. And I think what he meant was that computers in all of their forms have really been just with, withheld by a small amount of people. Like the original punch cards, very, very few people could use that. Mainframes, very few people had access to those. Personal computers, when they were command line, that was a huge barrier to entry. And then we got graphical user interfaces and more people could use it. But still, the vast majority of people struggled with them. Mm -hmm. And I think he believed the iPad was finally approachable enough, accessible enough. It didn't make you feel like an idiot. You didn't have to struggle with the dexterity of a mouse. What you see is what you could touch, is what you could move. That I think he felt he finally made a computer for everybody. And yet... Nerds have been super angry about it from the beginning because it eschewed <laughs> the traditional file system. It eschewed mouses and cursor. It, they have a hard time because Apple made so few products for so many years accepting that there would be products that weren't for them. That, you know, anytime, like I remember when the 12-inch MacBook came out, a lot of people I knew were like, it only has one port. Look at all the stupid dongles I have. And I'd be like, no, no, they make the MacBook Pro for you. Just because this is new and shiny doesn't mean you have to buy it. Right. Buy a MacBook Pro. Everyone will be happier. And I think the iPad suffered from that too. And we see that now. We see people who've just been desperate to use it like a traditional computer being incredibly noisy. Like, like the power users, incredibly noisy on Twitter and in reviews because it's Reviews have come to be dominated by tech nerds, not by the people who actually buy the stuff in mm -hmm. vast majority. So I think there was a huge divide within Apple about keeping the iPad as the device for everyone, that a child, that a senior citizen who'd never used a computer before, that anybody could pick up and understand, and also letting it mature so that people who were had higher affinity for computers could access the incredible power that Apple's silicon team was putting in there and the amazing displays that their display team, like it was top-notch hardware mm -hmm. being used for things that like, like basically locking out traditional computer users. And I think iPad OS was a step in the direction of trying to harmonize those two demands. And, and yeah, there's gonna have to be compromises. It's gonna be a little bit more complex for mainstream users. And, and maybe they won't notice, but maybe it'll make it a little harder to use. And it's still gonna be a little bit restrictive for power users. And maybe they'll work, they'll have workarounds, but they'll still feel like, you know, I can't just open up terminal or I can't just open up command line. Right. And why, you know, why can't I have this? Like, why can't I install my mod? Like, both sides are gonna feel a little discomfort. If Apple screws this up, they'll both feel alienated and the iPod, iPad's popularity will plummet. But if they do it right, I think even more than something like the Surface, it'll be a device that appeals to both the higher end of mainstream users 
and not the lower end of pros, but the the types of activities that pros engage in that aren't like gaming rig or workstation requiring activities. Right. Right. So let me let me ask you this. Um, how do you feel about the adoption of the mouse interface with the iPad? It seems like it's kind of a departure from that whole anybody can pick it up and use it. I, I think Apple has been trying for a decade to get past some of the traditional computer science cruft, you know, like like things like traditional file systems, which yeah. are not very human and things like mouse and pointers, which are better than command lines. But, you know, but aren't perfect for everybody. And mm-hmm. they haven't been able to. Like, uh, you know, Marco Armand famously said with the original version of Overcast, he tried so hard not to have a setting screen, ended up making the app 100 times more complicated than if he just added a setting screen. And I think Apple faced that. Like, they tried so hard not to have a file system. They made it so much harder than just adding a file system. Right. And they tried so hard to come up with all these ways to 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 do more advanced, more productive text selection and it's so much harder than just adding trackpad support. Mm-hmm. And I think now they're realizing that there are some things that traditional computers are better at, even when it's like Steve Jobs refused to allow arrow keys on the original Mac because he knew that developers would take the path of least resistance and just port their arrow key apps over. And he wanted to force people to use a mouse. Right. And Apple wanted to force people to use multi-touch. But it's been 10 years. You can give us a mouse or a trackpad now. Right? And I'm super happy they did that in a way that wasn't just bolting on the Mac version. They're trying to do a version of the trackpad that's native to iOS. That's very true. So I want to talk about watchOS because in this reviewer's opinion, having very rarely used an iPhone over the last five, six, seven years, Apple Watch, in my in my opinion, is like one of the best wearables that you can get these days. Now, it, it, it too has some flaws, like that grid of icons, which... Yeah. I admit I kind of liked when they first came out with it, but now that I've actually looked at it, eh. but but even so, <laughs> just in the way it does health tracking, in the way it you know kind of gamifies getting you to fill those circles, and in the way that I can actually save lives with uh, EEG yep. set EEG settings, and um, you know with the way that it's really focused on health. I'm I'm just kind of wondering what's next for Apple in terms of the Apple Watch. So the Apple Watch is super interesting to me because when I first heard rumors about it, I just thought the killer feature has got to be um, convenience. Like uh, going back to that analogy, my father got an Apple II so he wouldn't have to go use the mainframe. And I, for years, uh, I could, I, I didn't always, but I could run iMore from my iPhone so I didn't have to go running back to my Mac. Mm-hmm. And the Apple Watch, I just wanted it to do a few critical brief things well enough that I didn't even have to go reach or find my iPhone. And it's done that for me with like, especially like notifications. I don't mm-hmm. like all the the digital, you know, uh, you know, turn off your social networks, give yourself limits. That to me is managing your phone again. I hate that stuff. Or people who right. get an old phone or take stuff off their phones. I, I hate all of that. But I love that I can have an Apple watch on. And if you send me a DM, for example, I can tap on it, but I have zero ability to then spend the next 20 minutes browsing Twitter. Or if I right. get like a message, I can answer it but I'm not going to end up watching YouTube videos for an hour. So I love that it, it gave me the important stuff without letting me lose myself in it. And it had other stuff like biometric authentication for Apple Pay and for you know other, other things. And mm-hmm. the fitness stuff, 
Originally, they just had the heart rate monitor to give accurate calorie counts for the activities app. Yeah. But they started noticing the data they were getting from it, and they started talking to customers, and they realized that they could do all of this health stuff. And luckily, maybe fortuitously, uh, the executive in charge of Apple Watch, Jeff Williams, was also in charge of health initiatives, and they dovetailed so perfectly together. And they started adding things exactly like what you said, low, high, and... and um, irregular heart rate warnings, electrocardiograms, uh, fall detection. And I, you know, I've had a friend of mine fell down her stairs and the fall detection went off and she was hurt. So it was, it, you know, those kinds of things literally save lives. Mm-hmm. And immediately people go, well, PCs and phones save lives. And yes, totally. But right. they, they do that <laughs> by using their normal features. The, the watch has features especially designed to mm-hmm. save lives. And because you wear it all the time, even if you're in an accident and your phone is, is knocked away from you, you know, a bunch of different stuff happens or like, like the phone's not on you, so it can't read your heart rate. For, for, whatever re- for a bunch of very specific reasons, the watches just really adapt at it. Mm-hmm. And I think Apple, you know, it was hard to make the Apple watch. Uh, when you look at some of the watches that came before and after it, either they did much less or they were way bigger. Right. And Apple's been sort of keeping the same size, but adding features to it. Like in the beginning, it didn't have apps on the device. Now it does. Didn't have an app store on the device. Now it does. Didn't have its own LTE connection. Now it's halfway towards an LTE connection. Wasn't always on. Now it has an always on display. And mm-hmm. I think they keep adding that. And my hope is that the Apple Watch becomes a fully independent device it keeps increasing its health sensors, its health abilities, but it becomes independent enough that you no longer have to own an iPhone to use it. You'll still get extra benefits like the health app, the activity app, and all the continuity features if you do own an iPhone. It's like the best experience possible. Right. Uh, but especially with the, the lower end models, just everyone will have access to that kind of, that kind of technology if they need it. Right. Awesome. So I, I know we're kind of running short on time here, and I don't want to keep you very much longer, but this isn't an, – and one of the problems that I've run into with the state of podcasts is yeah. just trying to cover everything. Oh, so I wonder if you could just give me a few thoughts on privacy and specifically Apple's stance on privacy and beating the wardrobe – the 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 privacy wardrobe, as I like to call it. Yeah, for sure. So – it depends entirely on on the person. Like, so my my whole thing on this is just tell me, like, be honest with me. Tell me what you're gonna do and make it a fair deal. So Apple a- Apple's business model is such that they they just they give you a shiny box, you give them money, and that's pretty much the transaction. It's like going out on a date and you both pay your own your, for your own food. You both go Dutch. There's mm-hmm. very little expectations. With some other companies, and I will put Google and Facebook in this box, you go out for dinner, they buy you a lobster, and then you're never sure if they're leering at you afterwards. <laughs> and you, sometimes sometimes you don't care because you got a lobster. It's great. Other right. times you're like, what are they expecting from me? I'm really uncomfortable now. And different people will have d- either those two reactions or somewhere in between. I might argue that our data is so valuable. I mean, we have multi-billion dollar companies that are willing to pay anything to get our data we're sort of being ripped off like i think it's nice that facebook and google you know and even apple and some other companies to some extent give us free services i think there an argument could be made that they should be paying us at this point i know other people have talked about this but there should be a customer dividend where if you're all in on google or all in on facebook not only are the services free but whatever profit they make that year some portion of that gets paid out viva la revolution okay awesome yeah absolutely 
And I do like that we have choice. Like, I think it's super important that we have companies with different business models. They should all just be real. I'm not offended if you tell me you're taking my data in exchange for a service. I don't need to be gaslit. Just tell, make me an honest deal. And more often than not, I'll shake your hand. Right. Well, that's fair. Or in, actually, uh, if coronavirus has taught me anything, hashtag team fist bump. So yes. anyway. Yes. Elbow <laughs> bump. <laughs> so um, final question for you. Um, where does Apple need to go from here? And and what I mean is, like, what should Apple's ultimate goal be? Should it be more market share? Should it be the next billion? Should it be ARM processors? Should it be something else? Where is what's Apple's what's Apple's goal here? It just I mean, more more and bigger, I suppose. But like more a little bit more focused than that, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, so I think Apple has some decisions it needs to make. So like based on their culture and the way they develop products, they're hitting walls in terms of how much they can put out every year or how much quality stuff they can put out every year. And changing the company would affect what they're putting out, but so will continue to try to scale it at the same rate. Like you can't just keep adding things forever without making the architectural changes. I just mean organizationally to support it. So I think that's... You know, and they have gotten rid of some products, you know, and I complain about these two, like routers, they stopped making and they stopped making displays for a while. Um, but I think they have to make a choice of just if they want to stick with the same company structure, how many high quality products can they really make? And can they choose the right products, be okay with letting the other ones go, even if we're all really salty about it hmm. and just, you know, and make those hard choices or change? Grander than that, Tim Cook has said he, he thinks that when people look back at Apple, they'll see that their most important contribution was to health. And to me, that again is a choice. Like, if it's just all about iPhones, that may never be the case. But if Apple really does put, you know, all their wood behind things like, like imagine you just walk, like you're wearing your Apple watch and you're in an accident while you're, you know, in, in the future when we can travel again. You're, mm -hmm. you're in London and you have an accident and you get picked up and the EMS sees you have an Apple Watch and with your consent, they can just tap it and suddenly have all your medical information, your history, your insurance, mm -hmm. your allergies, all those things. Or you walk into a clinic and you tap your Apple Watch the way you tap it at a grocery store today and all your medical files and links are, are in there and the latest health results from you've been wearing it for the last 24 hours. Like there are some really transformative things that they can do but they'll have to figure out privacy because i think before they were maybe too absolutist and there are situations in health where and i think they recognize this but i'm not sure how far where people are need to be able to make i'm all about consent like again like the same thing with google and facebook i just want it to be consensual yeah. like let me say i want my doctor to have this information i am incapable of actually filling out detailed reports on my own because of of the chronic disease or something i have let mm -hmm. my caregiver do it for me uh, i want to be part of the study i think you know i know that my time is short but maybe i can help someone else one day you know i want to be part of the study and donate all my information all those sorts of things Right. I think they could make fundamental differences in those areas, but it's a very different focus than just, I mean, sure, the iPhone's funding all of that and they have to keep doing that. But just as a company, the priorities, I think, have to align behind that if they want to do it really intentionally and really specifically. Got it. Got it. So, okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a great, great way to sum things up and wrap things up. So, Renee, I want to go ahead and give you the floor right now, kind of <laughs> tell everybody, you know, where we can find you, what we, where, we can, where we can hunt you down on the internets if we need to, so we can uh, learn all about you. 
So I am either incredibly boring or incredibly consistent. It depends on your point of view, but I am Renee Ritchie on almost anything. So if you go to twitter.com slash Renee Ritchie, instagram.com slash Renee Ritchie, youtube.com slash Renee Ritchie, that is exactly where I am. Branding is important. There's nothing wrong with that. So great. And you've got uh, daily podcasts coming out every day. What are you, what are you focusing on with your, uh, with your new found freedom? Uh, so I, I want to start like slowly because I don't want I, I know like suddenly you can do everything you try to do everything and you burn out so I'm deliberately right. I started the YouTube channel I try to do a video almost every day I usually average about four a week okay though the audio from those videos goes up in the podcast feed I do one more traditional podcast a week and uh, that goes up as a bonus podcast usually on Mondays that's typically like uh, a very themed interview like I had um, I, Justine, and uh, Ray Zahab on recently. I'm going to have Watt Mossberg on and John Gruber on soon. Awesome. So that's, that's more industry chit-chat. Yeah. Um, and then I'm not sure from there. Like, I, I'm, I'm really into camera stuff, so one day I'd like to do, like, I tell myself I'd like to do documentaries and stuff, but I don't know if that'd ever be feasible. So I keep that as sort of like a dream in my back pocket while I, while I do the almost daily videos. Nice, nice. It sounds, you know, one of the one of the best. And you know, I'm kind of in a similar situation. I could do anything I want. So yeah. it's it it really is intimidating. <laughs> so it's yeah. almost like it's almost like the Android of creation. You could do anything you want. Yeah. Maybe we just need to settle into an iPhone and just do what works. So cool. Differently together. Exactly, Renee. I very much appreciate your time for coming on, and um, I hope to have you on again soon sometime. Yeah, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. So that's going to do it for this episode. I would like to thank Renee Ritchie for coming on and learning us all about Apple. I'd also like to thank co-producer Cliff for all of his hard work, but most importantly, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.